Welcome to the Sharid Sedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Sharit Zedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. This week's Torah portion, Tetzaveh, begins, and you probably know this by heart by now. You'll correct me if I make any mistakes. You shall instruct the Israelites. To bring you clear, pure olive oil for illuminating. Ner, ah, lehaalot ner tamid, for the elevating the eternal light. Now, ner tamid is a phrase that you may well know. It refers to the eternal light that hangs in every sanctuary of every synagogue. Ours is right here. Now, this modern ritual object is a reflection of the holiness of the very first Jewish lamp, the menorah, in the wilderness temple. The seven-branched menorah was a symbol of God's covenant with us and with the eternal, unending light of God's presence in the world, which is at the heart of our faith. Thus, the menorah was placed at the curtain of the Holy of Holies, closest to the ark. There was only one leader who was considered worthy enough to light that first lamp. It was not Moses. It was his brother, Aaron. So what did it mean to be chosen for this task, and what was it that was so special about Aaron as a leader that qualified him to do it? The truth is that God could have chosen any sacred symbol as the centerpiece of the sanctuary. It could have been a piece of stone. After all, the tablets were made of stone, and we sing Adonai Tzuri, Adonai is my rock. Few things are as eternal and enduring as a rock. Or God could have chosen a fountain. A fountain flows eternally, and the Torah is compared to an unending fountain. There are many famous rivers, wells, and fountains in our tradition. God chose a menorah, a lamp, for a reason. Lamps have two properties that make them special and a particularly apt symbol for God's presence in the world. First, they illuminate. They fill the space around them with light and warmth enabling us to see clearly, far beyond the size of the lamp itself. 
They bring a benefit to their surroundings. Secondly, they require human effort to sustain. While a rock gives nothing and requires nothing of us, a lamp must be lit through a spark and sustained by fuel. In the ancient world, this was olive oil. Now, to get oil from an olive requires an awful lot of effort. First, you have to knock down the olives from the tree with a long pole and then lay out a cloth or a net to catch them when they fall. You gather them up, and the ripest olives only grow at the very top of the tree, where they get the most sunlight, and they're the hardest to reach. Next, you take those olives, crush them under a huge stone, squeezing out that first oil. That pulp is then mashed and pressed a second time, generating most of the oil, although it's a little bit cloudy and the quality is not quite as good. Finally, the olives are pressed over a long time, releasing the last of the oil with many impurities. Now that is a lot of effort to get that oil for the lamps. In the Torah, we are instructed to fill the lamp with shemen, zait, zach, katit, only the purest, clear oil from the first pressing of the best olives. How is my pronunciation? Good? No other oil than the best first oil will do. Why? Because the lamp is a symbol. The oil we put in the lamp represents the effort that we put into illuminating the world, into illuminating those around us and raising up the eternal. It requires a lot of effort. Midrash Tanhuma, a kind of commentary on the Torah, even notes how exceptional it is that we use the best and finest oil of our efforts, not for our food, where we could taste the difference, you know, extra virgin olive oil, but rather we use it for lighting the ner tamid, the eternal light. Again, this is not just about oil. In reality, we tend to spend the greatest portion of our efforts on sustenance on producing a product or providing a service in exchange for the ability to put food on our tables and meet our material needs and wants. <clears throat> it is human nature to give our greatest efforts toward our vocation. The Torah tells us that it is our responsibility to rise above mere human nature. We have to sustain ourselves, yes, but we are charged with the divine task of devoting our very best efforts and our very first efforts, not as an afterthought, the purest and finest of what we can squeeze from ourselves to spreading the divine light. Now, how did Aaron earn this right as a leader, even above his brother Moses. According to Pirkei Avot, the great Rabbi Hillel used to say, be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace, pursuing peace, and loving all those whom God has made, drawing them close to, to the Torah. 
As a leader, Aaron was always making peace among rivals. He was a unifier, not divisive, not a demagogue. Our tradition teaches us a story of Aaron as a unifier. When two people were fighting with one another, Aaron would go and sit next to one of them and say, my son, look at the anguish your friend is going through. His heart is ripped apart and he's tearing at his clothes. He's saying, how can I face my old friend? I'm so ashamed I betrayed his trust. Aaron would sit with him until his rage subsided. Then Aaron would go to the other person in the fight and say, my son, look at the anguish your friend is going through. His heart is ripped apart and he's tearing at his clothes. He's saying, how can I face my old friend? I'm so ashamed I betrayed his trust. Aaron would sit with him until his rage subsided. And when the two people saw each other, they would embrace and kiss one another. Aaron led those around him to recognize the pain of vilifying those we disagree with. Couldn't we all use such a lesson of illumination in our lives? As a leader, he listened to people who disagreed. He did not fan the flames of conflict, and Aaron did not look down on anyone. We learn that when Aaron was walking down the road and he came upon a wicked person, he would wish him shalom. The next day, when that man wanted to sin, he would say, Alas, how will I be able to look Aaron in the face? I will be so embarrassed when he comes to me and wishes me shalom. And so this man would stop himself from sinning. Odds are, you've probably been following the U.S. presidential race closely these past couple of weeks, but you may not have followed two other elections that are critically important to us as Jews. The third election in Israel in the past year was held this Monday, just this past Monday. Now, it's unclear at this point whether this election will succeed in yielding the formation of a new government, but it seems clear that if it does, that government is likely to include the fundamentalist religious parties of the Haredim who already have a stranglehold on religious practice in Israel. This will only strengthen and consolidate their authority over things like declaring who can get married, limiting the rights of women, and banning non-Orthodox practices from public spaces. These are not the values by which we are instructed to illuminate the world. They are not peacemaking. They are not the non-judgmental, inclusive principles that Aaron teaches us. Well, time will tell whether such a government emerges following this latest election and what their agenda will produce. As American Jews, there is little we can do to influence our mishpacha, our family in Israel. But the good news is we are not helpless. We can, in fact, have an impact on the core of major Israeli policies and spending priorities through the World Zionist Congress. The World Zionist Congress is a elected body, a governing body that predates the modern state of Israel, and in fact played a central role in the formation of the government over 70 years ago. 
The delegates of the World Zionist Congress are elected every five years and are chosen not just by Israeli citizens living in Israel, but by all the world's Jewish community. It is open to any Jewish person in the world. Yes, even you. If you're in this room and you're Jewish, you can vote online for the reform movement slate. But this is the last week to do so. If you've already voted, great. If you've been waiting, this is the time. You can check the links uh, in our weekly temple emails, in the shofar, uh, or you can ask me or any clergy how to vote. It's simple, it takes five minutes, and it really has a tremendous impact on the future of, of policy in Israel. I would like to close this evening with a prayer for leadership from the renowned Jewish liturgist Alden Salavoy for political leadership. God of history, we yearn for leadership, for men and women of inspiration and insight, visionaries to build nations and communities in your image, stewards dedicated to justice, unafraid to face the challenges of our day so that our cities and countries resonate with compassion and health, justice and mercy, kindness and peace. Bless our leaders with dedication and foresight, fortitude and imagination to solve complex issues that threaten our future. May they lead us to a time when neighbors embrace the communities Thrive, a time when liberty and equality reign supreme. Source and shelter grant safety and security to all nations and communities so that truth and harmony will resound from the four corners of the earth. Let the light of wisdom shine brightly in the halls of power, a beacon of hope for every land and every people. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.